And we are back with Beyond the Block. We're back. Yes, sir. Derek, yes. how's your week been? It's been great. Really great. Cool, man. I've been recovering from a sickness most of the week. And, um, you know, so we're recording a little bit late because I didn't want to get Derek sick, but I'm feeling a ton better. And, you know, the nice thing yeah. I realized about being able to pick my own hours at work is the fact that I was able to rest as much as I wanted. I was able to sleep without setting my alarm. Nice. And then I'm pretty much just putting in all the work this weekend in terms of, you know, catching up. But, like, my recovery has happened, mm -hmm. like, super quick. I've been taking my medicine, staying hydrated, eating as much as I could. I'm pretty much all but asymptomatic. You know, like, the only symptoms I've really been experiencing has been a lot of fatigue. Like, mm -hmm. um, like I tried – I didn't work out at all this week. Like, I didn't go to the gym like I normally do, but I did uh, try going to the dojo this week because it's, like, a stripe test week, which is where we, like, go up in rank. And, like – Halfway through warm-ups, I started getting really winded, and I was like, oh, crap. This is not going to be a good time. Because, you know, when you, like, yeah. work out, you, like, feel the burn of lactic acid and whatever part of mm -hmm. your body is working. But I started to feel winded before that burn came in, and I was like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Like, I am not going to be very efficient today. And I wasn't. It was mm -hmm. a very hard day. But, you know, important thing is it's over, mostly, and uh, I'm recovering, so... Yeah, I have two interesting stories from this week. What One happened? is um, I met these Jehovah's Witnesses in the mall, and they walked up to me, and they said, which is the dumbest question in the world to ask me, they said, are you interested in the Bible? Oh, my gosh. They did not. <laughs> like, <laughs> they did not. They did. I'm like, yeah, you don't want to know how oh interested my I am in the Bible. <laughs> Dude, so, I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, too. So I was at the mall. What in, happened? In Watertown. That's where I saw them. They had this little table in the mall. The mall yep. lets them. I didn't know they did that, but they had this little table. And I was, I would have talked to them, uh, but I was uh, in a hurry. I had to get some stuff done. But Were you at the RMV in Watertown? No. Okay. But that's the mall where it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that was really great is I had a very restful and productive retreat with my fellow housemates. I live with four other people in a Christian intentional community and we had a retreat at a convent and it was really great in Arlington Bethany House of Prayer which is the Order of St. Anne which is an Episcopal um, women's religious order Oh, and uh, it was really great we got a lot of visioning done for where, where we want to be as a house and what we're doing and it's really great so I feel very 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 refreshed and invigorated about this amazing work we're doing it's very incarnational we're we've been planted here and we're dwelling among others in newton and seeing what we're doing cool that sounds like a great time yeah yeah so uh, you did the retreat and you talked to those jehovah's witnesses so i yes. assume you didn't actually talk about the bible with them um very briefly they started to uh say some of their beliefs and I told them exactly where in the Bible it came from and they were <laughs> very mm -hmm. surprised <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like they thought I was just some random person yeah but they didn't realize they were who they were talking to <laughs> oh man they got the smoke that day that's cool yeah they out here man I, I really admire that and they actually invited mm -hmm. me to come to their uh, kingdom hall on North Street so uh, I might actually go because they invited me nice I went once to a kingdom hall the one that's in um Brighton. Okay. And one of the really nice things was how racially integrated 
their congregation was. I like that a lot. I met, I think it was one third white, one third uh, Latinx, and one third black, uh, mm. and it was like all of them together. It, 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 from what I could tell, it w- was a very harmonious uh, place. People had a lot binding them together, mm-hmm. um, and that allowed that paved the way for them to to exist coherently in a, in one body. That's great. Like I love hearing that, but it also breaks my heart a little bit because, like, I noticed this last time we visited Union Church, and I also noticed it last time I visited an SDA and a Jehovah's Witness church. I walked in. And then I forgot how integrated the church was supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? And then I just like go back to, you know, our church on Sunday. And I'm like, oh, we're we're not quite there yet. Like, I hate how taken aback I am by a racially integrated church when I visit, Mm -hmm. you know, other faiths, uh, congregations. I really I would really like to see that change in the future. But I admire that they're actually, you know having an integrated church like a Christian church is supposed mm-hmm. to look. They look how Christian church churches are supposed to look. Yeah, and I've often thought about this um, because for the past basically four years that I've been in my ward, I've been the, as far as I know, only out gay person, mm-hmm. only out LGBT person at all, which is interesting because then whenever I say something about something, people believe me, whereas if there were two of us, we would be saying different things and no one would know what to believe, but they're like, oh, Derek said it, so he's, you know. The, You're the authority, the authority on gay. <laughs> yes, I am the local authority. There you go. But yeah, it's, and I, I don't think it's, for me, it's not tough being the only gay member, especially because I imagine there's going to be kids yeah. that grow up and they're going to remember, oh, Derek, and he's got a place here, and or teens, uh, or some of their kids might come out, you know. These seeds that we plant will will blossom. Right, right. And, you know, if I could only have, like, I'm sure if most parents could only have, you know, one person from that community to look up to or to, like, look to, you know, I'm sure they're glad that's you, Derek. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, I'm sure that doesn't put a ton of pressure on you simply because you're very comfortable in who you are. You're comfortable in your knowledge of the scriptures. You're comfortable in your identity as a gay man. Like, that doesn't seem like something that, faces you all that much and what's interesting is i think i'm more more sort of integrated and more secure than a lot of straight people in the church like i imagine people look at me like oh it's awful but it's not for me personally Mm -hmm. i'm looking there's a lot of straight people that are unhappy and i think a lot of um gender norms hurt uh women and men yeah Uh, and and of course trans people but Mm -hmm. a lot of our structure really hurts uh, many families, a lot of pressures around what your family's supposed to look like, and 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 I realize there's a lot of straight people that are not happy in the church. Yeah, and I w- and some of them would 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 literally switch places with me. I yeah. think if they knew what I had, you know, probably. So, so I don't want anyone to pity me or feel sorry for me. I so, will. I will say one observation I noticed. Um, you know, in my in the last family ward that I attended. When you actually pay attention, you come to find out that most, well, I'm not going to say most, but close to half of the families don't necessarily fit that cookie cutter mold Mm -hmm. of what we as members of the church believe a family is supposed to look like. You know what I'm saying? And um, I'll admit I kind of had that false idea for a long time, but I started paying more attention after my divorce and I had to like be in a ward by myself and I 
then I noticed there's a lot of non-traditional families in this ward, a lot of part member families, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, single parents, a lot mm-hmm. of, um, you know, people in struggling marriages or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's just something that never really came to my mind until I started looking for families that actually looked like mm-hmm. the kind of family I wanted to have. And then I realized most of the people that I looked up to in my ward didn't really have that. Right. And then I stopped feeling more out mm-hmm. of place. Yeah. You know, I was still out of place. I was the only black person in my ward. I was the youngest uh, person in my ward and I was newly divorced. So like that was just all kinds of weird. Like they found me in a hurry and told me to start going to the singles ward. But that still <laughs> made me feel, that still feel made me feel a lot better knowing that, not everybody was not everybody around yeah. me fit the norm you know what i'm saying and that's really what jesus's ministry was all about like mm. he didn't have a traditional nuclear family no, and he his did not. followers it was he re he redefined family or you know people get so uptight about redefining family but he redefined mm-hmm. family he's like i'm going to gather people around me who are living in a new way and we're going to have our loyalties to each other i mm. mean um, he, he said things like whoever you know doesn't hate their family isn't worthy of me, right? Mm. Uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, anyway, let's go ahead and get into the episode. Um, for news this week, the news cycle has kind of been eclipsed by this whole thing with 45's impeachment proceedings. Like, even Deseret News has kind of been consumed with it and, you know, kind of uh, mm. settling for more piecemeal efforts. But I suppose we can kind of supplement this section by talking about, uh, you know, general conferences, not this Sunday, but the Sunday after. I don't know uh, if you've heard anything coming this conference, but so far I don't think President Nelson has had a conference without some kind of major announcement. I haven't really heard anything in the uh, through the grapevines, you know, coming to conference, but I have heard one thing from a pretty reliable source about what could be coming next for the NAACP partnership. Oh, wow. So um, we we know about one initiative right now with the NAACP partnership, and that is the uh, self-reliance teachings in communities Mm -hmm. of color. So we know about that much. But there is another initiative, and I forget the name of the guy I heard this from, but, you know, he's a journalist. He writes for the Trib a lot, and and he's pretty close to – He's pretty close to church leadership. There are murmurings of some kind of program uh, for legal counsel for people who can't afford it. I'm not exactly sure what that is going to look like, but that looks to be the next initiative for for the NAACP partnership. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's something, and that's kind of okay. I am a little bit worried that so far the initiatives we have kind of feed into this idea of black pathology, just this idea that black folks need to have to be better with money and to, you know, stay out of crime or at the very least be able to afford legal counsel. I don't know. Um, But, you know, it's better than nothing. And I'm glad that they're at least reaching out to at the very least treat some of the symptoms. I'm just more looking forward to things that'll treat or things that'll point more at the system that made these efforts necessary. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think in, a, in some ways, if you're just looking at an analysis of black people trying to solve stuff, you're missing the point. What we need to analyze is white people and white power and white privilege and white supremacy. Yeah. That's where the, the focus needs to be. And then all these other things um, will fall into place. Yeah. Big time. 
So that's all I got. Um, we'll probably update the Facebook and the Instagram page with any other murmurings of uh, rumors that we might hear. But one thing you guys do want to be aware of, we are going to be live tweeting general conference, uh, you know, all the sessions or at least as many as we can catch. Yeah. Um, just follow us at BTBLDS on Twitter. That's where we're going to be live tweeting. If you're also not already following us on Instagram, the handle is the same at BTBLDS on Instagram. But uh, we will be live tweeting conference. So follow us and, uh, you know, we'll follow you back. And we'll mm. also be looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts on conference, assuming you guys will be doing the same thing. Yeah. Because we know people love to be live tweeting that general conference. Yeah. And uh, not only are we likable in real life, but we're also likable on Facebook. So find <laughs> our page and like us. Yes, Beyond the Block on Facebook. We're also very responsive to our comments and our messages. So if you do feel to reach out to us in any of those mediums, we do respond on all of them. So find us on Facebook. You can message us there. You can message us on Instagram. You can also uh, email us at our email address at, or, wow, at, it's at uh, beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. You can mm -hmm. send us an email there. Uh, send us whatever like send us your feedback send us your compliments send us your yeah. ideas for shows in the future or topics yeah. we can cover in our more extended episodes yeah you know we love to hear from you guys and we love to know how many of you guys are out there who be smelling what we're cooking yay so uh yeah only announcements i got if there is no other news derek um there's quite a bit to be covered in the book of ephesians right. so would right. you like to go ahead and move on to that yeah sweet yeah. Now, uh, Derek, I would like uh, to kind of establish a regular habit. I keep forgetting you're the theologian here, so I would love well, we're to both, just... No, we're both theologians. <laughs> we're both doing theology. Yes. But, you know, right? I do want to... Um, I would like to kind of preface uh, the book of Ephesians here mm -hmm. with, you know, the context, maybe the chronology yeah. and historical context of what's going on here. Right. Because I, I was able to uh, discern that there were definite themes and certain distinctive features of the book of Ephesians that I can go over. Yeah. But if you got any more you can add in terms of a uh, context or what's going on here in this letter, why it's being written, stuff like that. I would definitely love, uh, love to hear that. Well, yeah, there's part of the challenge is there's a sort of a big scholarly dispute in the literature and this has been going on for, you know, many decades already. Okay. Um, as to one, whether or not Paul actually wrote this himself and if he did, like, what is the, the, the setting and the context? Because when we look at what he says, he doesn't have a, any personal greetings to the Ephesians. He doesn't have any, oh, I'm responding to this thing that I know is going wrong, mm -hmm. which is what is in most of his letters. So some people think this may have been a sort of a general letter, a circular letter that was passed around to, to like a wide variety of uh, sort of an all-purpose letter. So hold on. You're saying that this may not have been a letter written directly to the Ephesians. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and in fact, our, a few of our oldest uh, manuscripts omit the, the, the phrase in Ephesus to the saints who are in Ephesus. They, they omit those two words Okay. Um, among our older. But it, see, it still it probably is in our oldest reconstructable text. Um, I think that's probably original to the text. But when you look at it, it might not have been to the to the Ephesians originally. Um, and then it's also in dispute as to whether Paul actually wrote it himself or whether a disciple of Paul wrote it sort of under his authority um, after his death, carrying on what Paul would have said. 
So that I don't want to get into a big scholarly thing, but just to know that that probably the majority of critical scholars of the New Testament think that someone other than Paul wrote it uh, okay. using Paul's name. I see. Yeah. And so it's hard to, to know then to re- and that's important because if, if we can't reconstruct like what Paul was writing to and when, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. We can only look at the internal evidence of what he's addressing to figure out um, he's he spends a lot of time talking about the church, mm-hmm. he, talking about um, divisions, especially between Gentiles and Jews. But he talks about unity in so many other ways. Yeah. And then he talks about life together and the implications of of his theology in chapters one to three for um, live life in community in chapters f- four through six mm-hmm. and uh, the household codes and things like that, which we can get into. I definitely noticed uh, those themes of unity. That was probably the theme that stood out to me the strongest. And that's in part due because I cited a lot of verses in Ephesians when it came to unity, particularly mm-hmm. when I uh, when I started my mission, when I was talking to people about the necessity of a unity of faith, I often would quote uh, verses in Ephesians to relay that concept. Uh, you know, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the purpose of the church, yeah. why it was all, why the church was built in the first place. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of good friends who are Christians as well, who say that they believe in God, they follow Christ, but they don't go to church because, you know, they kind of just lost faith in, faith in the church. Yeah. And, um, you know, I usually use the book of Ephesians to talk about how, look, if you believe in Christ or if you say you believe in Christ and you don't go to church, you're kind of missing the point. Like the the religion of Christianity is very interdependent. It's very mm-hmm. communal. It's it, it requires community. Like the purpose of Christianity, like the first two great commandments require yeah. other people. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, while I do want to empathize and I don't want to minimize the uh, the uh, the concerns of people who stopped going to church because they lost faith in an ecclesiastical leader or the people there, mm-hmm. you know, Christ commands us to do good to others. Christ commands us to serve others. And Christ demands that we are unified in the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you should subject yourself to, uh, to you know, mental and emotional trauma yeah. by going to church. You know, that's a different thing entirely. However, this idea of not being part of any organization or not being part of any church because you don't trust an organization, you know, that just that's going to come with it. You know, no church, no organization is going to be perfect, but it does fall on us to uh, to serve Christ, you know, through a church or it falls on us to at the very least uh, be part of an organization, be part of a community whose goal is to serve Christ where you find that you have a responsibility to serve. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the church really is the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world. It's like grabbing a foothold onto kind of like the allies did in Normandy. They're like, we're going to just take this beach and this is going to be the foothold from which we're going to liberate the rest of Europe. Yeah. And that's the uh that's really what the church is doing. It's planting this this one foothold a radical inbreaking of a new way of of living in community that's the called the kingdom of god in scripture yeah so there's a couple of uh other teachings in addition to that one of unity that i've noticed particularly uh teachings that latter-day saints tend to put a little more emphasis on uh there are teachings like um we learn for ordination we learn about Mm -hmm. in the book of ephesians 
we learn about the Holy Spirit of promise. We learn about the importance of prophets and apostles. Uh, the idea of one true and unified church we've already talked about. And we learn about the various functions of the church and their purpose. And uh, aside from that, there's also that brilliant discourse on the armor of God that we learn about mm-hmm. in Ephesians. And we get some really, really dope teachings on, uh, on the family. I recall, and you know, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but I really want to get to what Matthew Vines had to say about uh, about the family when he quoted Ephesians to talk about the place of uh, mm-hmm. LGBTQ relationships in the context of a Christian family. Yeah. So, uh, but we'll, we'll we'll go ahead and get to that. <clears throat> anyway, I, I wanted to start with uh, something kind of soft at first in in Ephesians four. This is uh, let's see what verses are these. It's kind of all over the place. Ephesians four eleven through fifteen, Ephesians four twenty six through thirty seven, and thirty one through thirty two. Um, I actually want to start with that ladder ladder selection first. Uh, this is the Joseph Smith translation of verse twenty six. It reads, "Can ye be angry and not sin?" That's the Joseph Smith translation of verse twenty six. I should actually have this open. Let me go ahead. And pull this up real quick. Yeah, while you're doing that, I want to say something about, like we've said about Paul before, his letters are occasional. He's not coming in with this entirely worked out system um, that structures everything and answers everything in, in advance. He's really coming in on the ground, saying what needs to be said in direct response and re- in reflection of what's going on in front of him. Mm. And we have to take that uh so then we have to take take that with a grain of of salt in a sense like what he says may not be may not apply the same way or may not be binding in the same way like when we talk about the ho- household colds later we'll we'll see some of this all right gotcha do you want to say anything about the context in which he's giving this particular instruction to be what does he say be angry and sin not well really that gets back to because of the the Jesus event, we live and flow through the world differently, and the the Gentiles in Ephesus um, really had to repent of a lot of different things, uh-huh. and this is just a new new way of being together. Uh, okay, can yeah. you? Okay, I I wanted to ask like a new way of being together in. Well, I'll just get to what I think yeah. this is saying, yeah. and you can you can let me know if I'm off or not. Okay. I I I did manage to find a. Greek translation of this particular sentiment, and honestly, it, it kind of mm. makes more sense to me than the actual um, Joseph Smith translation. And that's not to say that I don't think I understand what the Joseph Smith translation is trying to convey, but I just find a lot more beauty and meaning in what the Greek seems to be saying, and what I don't feel to be a very confusing verse. Be ye angry and sin not seems to be saying, you know, you're allowed to be angry but you're not allowed to sin in that anger or you're not allowed to sin. And I, just to say a little bit more about that, I, I just feel like this particular verse gets weaponized against people on the wrong side of oppression to, to stifle dialogue and to prevent them from seeking redress. But that's not really the kind of anger I think we're talking about here. I feel like there's wrath, which uh, James one twenty says does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So this is like the anger of men, which which is wrath. And then there's uh, what we can call, I, I suppose, righteous indignation, which both God and Jesus Christ themselves displayed. Yet we know that Jesus did not sin. 
Like we we read that God was angry with basically everybody, a lot of folks. We know he was angry with Moses. We know he was angry with Aaron and Solomon and basically the entire nation of Israel. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked literally every day, but we don't really say anything of that. And then, of course, when it comes to Jesus, we like to cite that example of him driving out the money changers. You could argue he was angry there. And certainly when he called out the scribes, Pharisees, and teachers of the law for their hypocrisy in Matthew 23, we could argue he was angry there. And we're pretty sure that Paul was angry based on how he started the book of Galatians. If you remember last week, we talked about how he started every... um, he started every book, every letter so far with a salutation of thanksgiving, but not the book of uh, but not the book of Galatians. There was no thanksgiving there. Yeah. There was just out the gate a lot of condemnation and calls to repentance. We could argue he was angry there, um, and perhaps Paul was angry during that con- uh, that confrontation with Peter at at Antioch. You know, when Peter just about dispossessed mm-hmm. the entire Gentile population of the church to preserve the feelings of some fragile Jews, he was ministering to. Paul could have been angry then when he called Peter out on his hypocrisy. Uh, my, my, my point is that the driving force behind this anger seems to be a desire for justice, equality, peace, you know, just worthy ideals. You know what I'm saying? There's, mm-hmm. a, there's an anger that seems to be justified here because the driving force behind it, it's not selfish. The driving force behind it is geared towards justice and godliness. That doesn't mean that the expression of anger is always perfect or always even justified. Like the example I think of immediately is uh, Tiankum in the Book of Mormon. We read about him going down in his uh, justified anger to slay Amaron and then getting killed in the process of doing it. You know, we saw Tiankum slay Amalekiah, you know, for his treachery or whatever. And he was cool and he was collected and strategic about that whole thing. But he was not cool, calm, and collected and strategic about his slaying of Amaron. He went down there by himself, and, you know, in his haste, he could only get close enough to throw a javelin, which caused his Amaron to wake up and call his servants and, you know, eventually end up slaying Tiankum. So there is a lesson to be learned there. But uh, the point I'm just trying to get at is that this particular verse can't really be weaponized against marginalized groups to stifle dialogue and keep them from being angry. Too often we police the anger of people who are on the wrong side of oppression because we don't like the way they communicate their displeasure. We don't like the way they they communicate their anger. And we might condemn them for even being angry as if they don't have a right to be. But uh, that kind of anger is not to be condemned in my mm-hmm. in my opinion like the kind of anger that's being spoken of here is wrath that is what we condemn we are not to condemn righteous indignation because even Jesus and God uh, themselves they displayed that kind of anger but also the way they uh, displayed it that was also in a godly manner they were just mm-hmm. they were still equitable and they were still they, they were simply letting consequences follow. You know, they were never rash in their execution of righteous indignation. So there's something to be said for that kind of anger. Yeah, I think what it go what it goes back to is what is the effect of what is the, the anger? Effect? Okay. Like if if your kid is about to touch a hot stove, you're gonna yell at them. Yes. Right. It's gonna it might scare them or whatever, but it but it's um but yeah, there's a sense in which an injustice or a a risk or something actually needs a particular alarm associated with it in order and the effect is not 
to to abuse the person or or belittle them or anything like that. If yeah. that's the effect, then we've got a problem. But if the effect is to actually forestall a major problem, then it's justified. Right. And not right. only that, but it's required mm-hmm. by our our commitment to justice. Required. Yeah, it's definitely required. So uh, that's all I wanted to say about uh, about that particular verse. Just uh, just to cite that bit about the anger. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the middle wall of partition spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I've uh, been learning more about ancient temples this year. And the last thing I learned about it was the importance of the miracle that Peter and John performed on the lame man in front of the temple. Mm-hmm. Because what I learned back then was that the lame weren't permitted in the temple or beyond the outer courts of the temple. And that what Peter and John gave to this man was not just better health, was not just an able body. Mm -hmm. They gave him access to a part of the temple he was not allowed to access before. And that to me was super powerful. Now, what the reason I bring that up is because Paul is talking about bringing down the middle wall of partition. Now, the temple in Jerusalem contained uh, several courts, several areas, and only certain types of people could earn could enter uh, could enter each court. Now, Gentiles, they were allowed to enter the outer courts of the temple, but they were not allowed to go past uh, the middle partition. They were not allowed to go there. And that wall stood like... It was a tall wall. It was like a foot or a meter or something, one of those measurements. Now, if a Gentile passed beyond that particular point, they could be put to death. Yes. That, mm-hmm. Okay, that is the law. Got mm-hmm. it. Now, following Paul's uh, second or third missionary journey, we do learn that some Jews in Jerusalem accused Paul of bringing Gentiles beyond the barrier, which ended up leading to Paul being imprisoned, which I thought was also pretty OP. Like Paul, Mm -hmm. you know, legit went to jail over allowing Gentiles the same blessings and privileges that he had, which is really cool. This is another instance that we learn where Paul was willing to put his privilege or use his privilege, leverage his privilege to allow people less privileged than themselves mm-hmm. than himself to have access to justice, access to blessings that only certain people were quote unquote entitled to. Yeah. That just reminded me of, I forgot his name. Um, but there was a, a white high priest in 1976 or 1977 who decided to, um, ordain a black man as an elder. Uh, and of course, they were he was excommunicated, right? But he was doing what the prophet was going to do in just a few more years. Yep. And I think there is there's a particular urgency of spirit that must have been behind that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like what what Paul is doing mm. um, with the Gentiles. And Paul and Paul had consequences, you know. Paul he didn't get excommunicated, obviously, but there was there was a whole riot, and uh, also Paul got arrested as a result yeah. of this. And this is all in Acts chapter twenty-one. Yes. And I just want to read because archaeologists have found uh, this middle wall between the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts. They have found um, the actual. There were these stone inscriptions. And let me let me find it. And and there's these tablets here, and they found these from from around the this time in Jerusalem. Okay. And this is what the inscription reads. It says, "No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever oh. is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death." Shoot. 
And yeah, it's like this warning, like big warning. Like we have all these warnings, like do not cross or else you'll, you know, whatever. Um, kind of like at the T, there's like, do not go in here. There's a third rail. You'll die. Yeah. That's the kind of sign this is. It's a warning of like, because, you know, this Jerusalem is a very, uh, you know, many people come to the city and people might not know. Yeah. But yeah. There's this sign here um, written in Greek so foreigners could read it. Okay. And uh, that's this middle wall of partition that's in uh, that was broken down by Jesus, as Paul as Paul says in Ephesians yeah. two fourteen. And that's what I really wanted to get to was the fact that uh, Paul stated that these walls, this middle partition, was broken down through the atonement of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ, and now everybody gets an opportunity to go into the temple. Everybody gets access to salvation. This is another moment where we see Paul once again affirming. Um, you know, God's injunction that God really is no respecter of persons. Yeah, and this would have been as surprising and inappropriate, I guess, as someone today saying Jesus broke down the recommend desk. <laughs> like that's how offensive the gospel is. Mm. Is uh, It leads people to say stuff that's like, wow, I didn't think that could happen based on their prior assumptions. Yes. And what's interesting about that is the effects of this, it goes back to access as well, because if you look at Ephesians 2, 13, 2, 13. Uh, it, it talks about, about access, and this is in the, um, but now in, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Mm. It's like, um, yeah, and then in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one one new man in place of the two. And verse 18, for through him we both have access, access in one spirit to the Father. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about, um, yeah, it's just, it's just really amazing. And then there's not only in verse 312, there's not only access, but boldness. It says, um, uh, in whom, meaning in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Mm. And so much of this is um, energized by the Christ event for Paul, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now causing trouble among us here. Mm. Uh, causing trouble on our behalf, I should say. And yeah. That, and, um, yeah, it's just so amazing. Really is. And I just got to read this verse that precedes this one that talks about having access uh, by one spirit unto the Father. Like this verse is pretty famous in, uh, in Christian writ, which is verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Like um, I've always heard this scripture, you know, out of, out of context, but in this context, it just has even more meaning for me now because it comes after the declaration of justice, declaration of access for everyone, and the abolishing of whatever walls, whatever prejudices, whatever obstacles were in between uh, people and their mm -hmm. salvation, people and their fellowship with the rest of the saints, people and uh, just their general access to the gospel. So I just wanted to read that in that context or in this context we we now have in reading the whole book of Ephesians. Yeah, and that gets back to this this idea of 
part of part of what he's doing is completely turning upside down what people thought was the covenant path. Yeah. One of circumcision mm-hmm. for the man, um, keeping kosher, keeping the calendar, keeping the laws uh, of Moses. And he actually says these this is abolished. Like this, what you thought was the covenant path for everyone um, isn't isn't required. How interesting. Yeah. <laughs> How interesting. Like, I'm so glad that that God is my heavenly father. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul seems to be having a lot of interesting experiences when it comes to the gospel. We've watched him say that what you think the covenant path isn't actually the covenant path for everyone. We've watched him call out a high profile church leader. In fact, the highest profile church leader on their hypocrisy because they Mm -hmm. stepped out of line with Christ. You know, we see a lot of things that we don't think are necessarily possible today. But Paul did in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like these, this Paul, I feel like Paul's stories have tremendous implications for the saints today. And I'm just really anxious to see how, how some of this is going to look today or how some of this would look today because we're, we're not, we're nowhere near being done receiving the gospel of Christ. Right. And I'm just really excited and anxious to see what receiving more of the covenant, receiving more of the gospel mm-hmm. is going to look like. And I have a feeling some of this may very well look like, um, how Paul has been preaching the gospel. Yeah, and this gets back to um, Galatians three twenty eight that we talked about last last week. That yeah, in, yeah. In Christ, there's neither um, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and there's not male and female. Mm-hmm. And in Galatians, he only really develops one of those, the whole Jew and Greek thing. And um, from a feminist perspective, there's a lot more that we can unpack from the from the statement that there's no male and female. Yeah, like. As I said earlier, gender roles hurt everyone. Yeah. Enforced normative artificial gender roles. Um, There's, you know, discrimination, expectations, all these other things. Yeah. And we're better off. This this whole one new humanity that's being formed in Christ is we're better off transcending some of those categories and realizing, look, we can coexist with diversity and and it's it's so beautiful. And I think there's like all are alike unto God, including male and female is. Yeah. Uh, as Second Nephi twenty six thirty three says, I mean, we we can there's there's more to be uncovered around um, the place for people of all genders in our church. Big time. <laughs> and um, female ordination is coming. Get used to it now. Yeah, and <laughs> what's interesting about that is uh, Galatians uh, four nineteen. It's very interesting because Paul uses. Uh, feminine imagery for himself he's he's characterizes himself as the mother of the of the gentile galatians like he 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 doesn't say i'm your father he says you know my children i've been laboring in birth pains to bring forth what christ is uh is in you right Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like now if he can can sort of transgress some of these categories and 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 image himself as the mother of Galatian of the Galatians like that really rethinks what some of us culturally who say like oh anyone who wants to confuse gender is of the devil I'm like the biggest confuser of gender is uh is God right because God loves you know the marvels of of God's creation right Mm -hmm. and that's that's uh and and so much of Gender is, as as the uh, 
as critical theorists would say, is constructed socially, and, yeah. and gender is performative, and it's it's it it holds meaning in a particular social context that gives roles the gives gender roles their uh, significance. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is when you look at our creation narratives, we have this idea of like look, here is matter unorganized. And I think we could say the same thing about gender. Look, here is gender unorganized, and we're the ones who organize it. Mm. We, we decide like what, what this is, and it, it's, uh, it, it's a, a significant responsibility, but there's also a significant freedom in, in that, and that no one is tied to or locked into something artificially um, based on gender discrimination that that w we decide oh this is you know this is how we're going to live mm. um for good or bad that that's how we construct our gender um it's, yeah so yeah maybe gender is eternal but there's a sense in which it's it's unorganized and we we, Are the figure ones it who out. we it. define like what what our gender is yeah and how it how it plays out and how it's performed cool I want to get to, um, speaking of feminists, people should know about uh, this author, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza. Okay. And she was, uh, she's at Harvard, uh, and I'm going to quote something from this book, In Memory of Her, A Feminist Theological Reconstruction of Christian Origins. And um, she has a little section on the household codes in Ephesians, which we haven't gotten to yet, but this is the one that looks at the, uh, the roles the roles and expectations of husbands and wives, enslaved people and their masters, and uh, children and parents. Okay. And um, those texts are really challenging because uh, the author of Ephesians basically says you should submit. Submit. Yeah. Uh, husbands, uh, wives should submit to their husbands. Enslaved people should, uh, children su should submit to their parents, and enslaved people should submit to their masters and uh, I don't have time in this podcast to fix all of that right now, but <laughs> I can point out what, what Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza said here. She says, in, in talking about these household codes, quote, however, it is important to recognize that the author, the author of Ephesians, does not develop the patriarchal domination-subordination relationship in terms of the whole community. Although he speaks of those who are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipment of the saints, this is Ephesians 4.12, mm -hmm. he does not ask the saints to subordinate themselves to them, nor does he say that they, the church leaders, are the sign of unity. Mm. Neither does the author claim that the leaders represent God, the father of the household, nor that they are males acting in the name and place of Christ. So what she's saying is, look, you've got these particularly narrowly defined submissive relationships between those those three category, uh, three pairs of categories. But she does, but she says that the author of Ephesians doesn't make that same uh, claim for the prophets, apostles, and leaders in the church. That the the only thing the author says here is that they're for the equipping of the of the saints to provide for us and to give us what we need. And to basically serve us, like we don't serve them, mm. and I think that's a very important thing because what Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza has done is looked at the power dynamics in the New Testament and realized that there's more 
um, of a collaborative rather than hierarchical and dominating, especially when you look at what Christ, how he modeled and how Paul modeled things. It wasn't like, I am, I'm a tyrant, I, you do what I say because I have this office. That actually is forbidden by Doctrine and Covenants 121 about right. unrighteous dominion and just saying uh, you're right because you hold the priesthood or Correct. a particular office. That is, if you ever use that as your trump card, you're done, right? right? You have lost. And that's why I love about Paul is he yeah. never says, um, like you know, I'm defers, right. I'm right because I'm an apostle. Um, he never uses that as, as the – now, he he does appeal to his authority when he's trying to uplift some other uh, population that's vulnerable. But never as a means never, of control. But never to, uh, to, to make his job easier. Right. And, and I, just, I just love that. That reminds me – so for those of you that don't know, I'm a – I'm also a math teacher, um, th- and two of the things that I tell my math students are: you need to um, show your work and explain your reasoning. And Paul loves to do both of those. He he pulls out all these great arguments from the scriptures, from experience. He works to persuade people rather than just say, "Well, I'm right, and you got to get in line." Um, and it's it's just so brilliant that that I think that's that's what I expect of prophets and apostles today yeah. is to show your work and to explain your reasoning. If they had done that for the priesthood ban, it mm-hmm. wouldn't have been there. Right, right. They couldn't show any valid reasoning behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that's uh, that, so. That's one of the questions I ask my math students: is like, tell me why. Like why why is that the way it is, mm. or why are you saying that? And I just I just love that about Paul, and I think not that I agree with everything that Paul said in all contexts right, or that they're right. always transferable to the present day, but I love the fact that he named that as a value, yeah. even when he did, says stuff like around husbands and wives and enslaved people that I would not say myself, right? Yeah, yeah. I at least can can see the value that 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 was behind some of his reasoning elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So is there anything uh is there anything about uh gender that you further want to say about uh that you further want to say in Ephesians? Yeah, I mean there's this there's this famous text in here that's beautiful about husbands and wives that's been used at weddings and stuff and it has um caused a number of of women in the church to wonder what their what what that is right Mm -hmm. and i can't i can't quite you know defend paul's phrasing here i'm not gonna (laughs) i'm not gonna do that but what i can say is where's it springing from and what what a lot of people may may see is like where it says husbands submit to your i mean wives submit to your husbands and they'll take that but what he's doing is this is part of a longer sequence that's prompted by some contrasts like don't live this way with with anger and with drunkenness and all these other things yeah. but live this way live in the spirit as a new creation and that outgrowing from that is, is his comments for the household codes yeah and let me just turn to to where this is in Ephesians 5 oh yes Ephesians 5 and what i love is that the first thing he thinks of when he says living in the spirit what that looks like is Singing. I love singing. Derek it's, does love singing. It's, it's amazing, and and so does James. 
Yes, James um, loves singing too. But so he says in, in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this be filled with the Spirit is the only um, main verb that we get for a number of verses. All of these other following verses have a, a, a participle making a dependent clause that leads back to this. Like there's mm-hmm. no other independent um even in verse 21, submitting to one another. So we've got in verse 19, you've got addressing one another in psalms and songs. Then in verse 20, you've got giving thanks, another participle. Then in verse 21, you've got submitting to one another um, in the fear of Christ. And so what he's doing is, your main clause is, be filled with the Spirit. And then all these things are part of the same sentence. So it was was the, the first thing he thought of after be filled with the Spirit is singing. And I just love this idea for the community because when you're making music pe- with people, you have to have a very particular sense of unity. In many cases, you have to literally breathe at the same time, which is something people don't even do in sex, and people think sex is intimate. But there's a sense in which singing, you are in harmony, you are in unison, you are on the same beat, mm-hmm. you are breathing together, you are thinking together, you are expressing emotion together in a very synchronized and beautiful way. And there is, that's only made possible by a sense of submission. Yeah. You have to submit to the baton. You, I can't just go and choose my own tempo, right? Mm-hmm. You would throw me out of your acapella group if I chose <laughs> my own tempo, right? Or for the sake of what you're doing together, there has to be mutual submission. And that's the springboard, the singing. Then Paul immediately thinks of submitting one another yeah um and then that's not to justify or erase uh, the the challenges of the statement that says wives should submit to their husband right right but it's springing out of this idea of singing and i like that model of submission i don't mm-hmm. like this uh, authoritative model of submission where uh you have domination this this particular submission that you you do consensually in in the service of singing is a great model for how we we make room for one another in Christ. And gotcha. it, of course, it's the people with power who need to make room yeah, for those yeah. with li- with less. And, and Paul talks about this. He's saying, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which yes. is a significant responsibility. Is that something what you were going to talk about? Yeah, actually, because um, Matthew Vines, the uh, Christian LGBTQ activist, he actually said something about this, uh, both in that event that we attended mm-hmm. several months ago and also in his uh, book, God in the Group. God and the Gay Christian, which has been instrumental in my understanding of the LGBTQ relationship uh, with the Christian church. Uh, He actually quoted Ephesians 5 in talking about uh, the principles of marriage that anybody of any gender or any sex could actually abide. Uh, What he had to say was that he quoted Ephesians 5 to say that marriage is about keeping covenants with one spouse to reflect God's covenant with us. And same-sex couples can live that out in their relationships. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing in um, Ephesians five that ma- that makes it gendered. Right. 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 Like, there's nothing that that a husband can do in Ephesians five that a wife can't do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing a wife can do that a husband can't do. There. There's. I like how Paul starts with mutual submission in verse um, in twenty one, submitting to one another. Yeah. In the fear of Christ, and yeah. then all of that other stuff is an outgrowing. Of submitting to one another, and that's why I have to say that Paul wasn't a you know a systematic theologian that has this worked out system. Like mm-hmm. he did not work out 
um, an empire-wide abolition of slavery. Like part of me wishes he would, but that's <laughs> not what he was doing. He was he was re- he was writing to people who. Um, in Ephesus, you had both Christian masters and their slaves who were both Christian. And how yeah. did they live together now? Right. And he he's not gonna he he's not gonna come up with an empire wide abolition of slavery. He's gonna say within this context, this is the best I can tell you. And it's to to actually and this is actually radical. He says to the to mas- to the masters, you need to live like a slave, a slave to Christ. Mm. And for the for the slaves he said, you need to live like you're free, free in Christ. So he like flips it upside down in this really radical way that that causes should cause both the masters and slaves to to look at their uh, position in a, in a different way. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, I, I shouldn't have to say that I don't support the institution of slavery. But what I'm saying is, Paul Paul didn't think of this from above. Like, oh, I I want to have this framework that understands the abolition of slavery, the the equality of genders, this all these other things, and then I'm going to tweak everything in light of that. He he was writing to people on the ground who were like, look, I my wife and I just converted to 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 be to the Jesus movement and we want to know how we live now that's the f- that, that's that's what he's he's in and yeah. that's what he's writing to yeah these these situations of urgency that are prompted by real people in front of him in a given time now if he had a long time he might have said oh let's let's just you know do let's jump right to third wave and fourth wave feminism like he could have done that but he's not a systematic thinker he's like prompted by this the spirit and i think we in the church are free to be prompted by the spirit as well yeah yeah we don't have the whole we don't have all the answers i don't claim to have all the answers and that gets back to the prophets and the apostles yes they're here to equip the saints but they don't have all the answers and when they're when they're on at their best they say it they say it they very clearly say like there's more to teach on this i don't know um and that's when I think they can build the most trust and yeah. most respect. Yeah. Other than that, um, I don't have anything on Ephesians 5, and I just have a few things to say about Ephesians 6. Cool. Ephesians 6. So what's going on in Ephesians 6? I love this beautiful um, pull, put on the full armor of God thing. Uh, yep, armor of God. And I can, uh, I'm going to tie this back to preparing for conference because there's a sense in which um, LGBT people have to prepare themselves for conference oh, in always. a particular way. Um, and not just LGBTs because they, uh, they could say something about whatever. But, but, but yeah, you have to – my advice to people would be to – to cope in advance and to take care of yourself whatever you, way you need to um, and it, in some ways brace yourself so that you you have some defenses in already to go before like anticipate um, someone saying something that that is painful or off off the mark and then cope in advance, like arm yourself with the army of God. And I'm not saying this in any way to attack the prophets and apostles. I respect them, and I love them, and I respect their authority. 
Yeah. And this gets back to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah. Like I have, it's a, about these ideas, these the powers of wickedness that are infesting the world and actually infest all of us. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's, that's what I what I wish people would understand is yeah you can be good a good person and still have some bad ideas you're Absolutely. still a good person right? yeah yeah um, but but the idea to call someone a racist means that oh I don't think you're a good person it would be so easy if you could make people good and they'd be stop stop being racist because then you yeah. could just make people good yeah the fact that good people can be racist um, and I'm one of them right I'm a good person I, I still do the work of racism. Uh, inadvertently, right? Right. Uh, but, but yeah, it's real, and uh, so our struggle isn't against people; it's against these 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 powers of of, of evil that that are uh, unseen, mm-hmm. and that's the sense in which we have to to prepare for conference. And I love this idea of the shield because in in the in the Greco Roman world they have they had several types of words for shield, and this shield that that you're supposed to put on in Ephesians 6, verse 16, is um, a thurion in Greek. It's it's the um, escudum in Latin. It's a very large shield. Uh, well, the people out there can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but it's about <laughs> the, sh- the size of a door. In fact, it's related to the Greek word for door. It's a huge shield that can cover a whole person, not just like that small shield, that that, that, uh, that small circular shield that basically covers your, your forearm. And what they do with this is you can actually line people up in a formation that the shield covers half of you and half of your neighbor to the left and, and really tightly um, make these shields come together like scales and in this formation that looks like a turtle. And that's what the, the Latin word, the, uh, um, the testudo formation, where you've got all these uh, soldiers with these shields. And the, the point is, that they protect each other. It's not just one shield protecting you. You get into a formation where you center um, the strength around you to protect the vulnerability on the inside, and you do it in a in a way that covers everyone. Okay. And that's what we need to do for LGBT people in the church. We need to all come together with our shields and embrace those who are most vulnerable among us. And in fact, Thucydides, the, the Greek historian, talks about how they would take leather shields and dip them in water so that when um, armies would shoot flaming arrows at them it would extinguish the flames Mm. and that's exactly what the uh, imagery Paul is going for here in um, in this verse in Ephesians 6 is like we've got a strength here to prepare ourselves for all the onslaught of what the worst the world can offer and that's that's kind of what uh what are, where I was going with Ephesians six and what it means to how the community can can wrap around LGBT people and any other marginalized and vulnerable uh, vulnerable population. Yeah. And this gets back to the unity of the church, which is the heart. I love how Paul talks about the theology in the first half of the letter and applies it in the second half of what difference does this make for living in community? Uh, that's all I got for Ephesians as well. So uh, there's uh, nothing else to be discussed there. Thank you for those thoughts, by the way. Like, yeah. I really appreciate those. Then we'll go ahead and move on uh, to the prayer roll section of the show. And uh, Derek, who are you going to put on? Well, I'm going to put Amber Geiger and the, oh, whole, the whole system around her. Yeah. 
Okay, then I should go first then because that is definitely the uh, bigger story this week. I, I just want to talk about, um, gosh. So I'm putting on the prayer roll the Emmanuel Christian School in Springfield, Virginia. I don't, I don't know if you heard about this instance, uh, Derek, this incident rather. This is a private school in Springfield. Mike Pence's wife teaches there part-time. Tuition is like 12000 a year at this school. It's an expensive private school. It's a Christian school, again. A uh, young black girl named Amari Allen had been bullied since the beginning of the school year by a group of three white boys. And this past Monday, she was assaulted by these three. Um, and, you know, Amari is 12 years old. So uh, these boys who are assaulting her, her are presumably 12-year-old sixth graders. And what they did was they restrained her, pinned her up against a slide. They cut a big chunk of her of her locks out. She was uh, sporting locks at this time. She's still sporting locks. And uh, while they were doing this, they were calling her ugly, saying that her hair was nappy, saying that they wish she had never been born. You know, just a lot of insults and obscenities in the middle of this. And this whole assault went on for like uh, five minutes or so. Now, there's a lot to uh, unpack in this particular story. The, the, the first thing that needs to be acknowledged and probably the foundation of every issue I have with this story is that this kind of disrespect and dehumanization against black girls is way too common, like way too common. Like I know at least one sister of mine was subjected to this kind of bullying. And ironically, that was also at a Christian private school. Just two weeks ago, we spoke about uh, a black student athlete who had her swim victory stolen from her because a suit wedgie made a referee uncomfortable with her body. Uh, also this week, just this week, a six-year-old black girl was arrested for throwing a temper tantrum at school, a six-year-old black girl, yeah, uh, which is just absurd. And, uh, and a few months ago here in Boston, we were talking about, uh, how black teenagers were compared to strippers in the museum of fine art. And these are just the incidents that happened at schools, you know? But, uh, the, the point I'm getting to is that this, this nation has always had a problem with respecting black women so so this is all to say that this particular incident it's not surprising to me at all i'm not shocked that something like this happened uh even in the 2019th year of our lord i'm not surprised that this happened to black women like this is just this just seems to be the norm uh the second thing if i'm paying twelve thousand a year and i find out that my child is being bullied in such a manner like I'm fighting everybody. Like everybody is catching hands. I'm I'm fighting the administration. The teacher's gonna catch hands. Those boys are catching hands. Their parents are catching hands. I'm I'm going to jail if you take twelve thousand dollars that I'm giving you to provide my child an elite education and presumably protect my child, and I find out that you are not protecting them. Like, where on earth was the adult supervision here? Why wasn't this child protected? Like there was a five minute assault and just one incident in a long string of bullying that had been happening since the beginning of the school year. Mm -hmm. And apparently the school was either not privy to this or they just didn't care because, again, they don't care about black girls. Like, that's just... I can only assume that's why this was allowed to happen, both on the part of the administration allowing it to happen and the fact that these boys just did not value uh, black girl life that they were able and felt okay in doing this whole yeah, thing that they're entitled to black yeah, bodies. like they just are entitled to black bodies and that kind of brings me to the next thing why hasn't anything been done yet like this incident happened on monday 
and they're still not at the bottom of this incident. Like, what the heck is going on? This girl has had to go to school with these boys in the midst of her trauma. And if you watch these news stories where she's being interviewed, she is clearly traumatized. Her parents are traumatized by this whole thing. The school supposedly has a zero tolerance a zero tolerance policy for bullying yet nothing has been said of whether or not these three boys have been expelled no discipline has been administered and generally speaking justice has just been denied to this girl and her family again you take $12,000 of my money to educate my child and you don't protect them and justice is not being exercised in her behalf we are going to have a problem and then again this just speaks to how little black life particularly black female life is valued in the eyes of a system that was never built for them in the first place and finally and one of my biggest issues with this whole story this is a christian school yeah like why don't these boys know better why doesn't this administration why why doesn't the school administration know better you, you talked about this a while ago on what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. And I feel like this is it right mm-hmm. here. Like taking the name of the Lord in vain isn't just saying, you know, God or Jesus at inappropriate times where we're not trying to invoke their blessing. You know, it's not just cussing. <clears throat> taking the name of the Lord in vain is using God's name to do things that God himself would not do. Using Christ's yeah. name to do things that Christ would not do. That's what got got Christ the maddest. That is people what got doing, Christ the maddest. People doing stuff in the name of God and hurting others. In the yeah. Name of God. He was mad about that, you know, mm-hmm. especially at the temple. Especially at the temple. Like, this is a big deal. Like, to just, like, how are you going to call yourself a Christian school and just let these kids be bullied, let black life be disrespected like this, and there's still not any kind of swift punishment. You don't get to call yourself a Christian school where you let this kind of thing happen. You don't get to call yourself a Christian where you don't stand up for black women when this kind of thing is happening. You see, like there's no way nobody else knew that this black girl was getting bullied. Somebody had to know something and that nobody said anything or did anything and that this young black girl didn't even feel like she was okay to say or do anything. She like kept this to herself for two days before she finally said anything to anybody. In fact, the only reason she said anything was because someone in her family finally noticed that her locks were uneven and they asked her what happened. That's like what finally Hmm. got her to say anything about this assault that happened to her. But somebody knew something and nobody spoke up for this girl. That is one of the most unchristian things you can do because Christ was all about speaking up for the marginalized. He was all about making sure they had a seat at the table. Hmm. He was all about making sure they got respected. And, you know, this whole thing that we've been reading with Paul, like a big part of his ministry has been affirming this again and again and again. Like we just read in Galatians how he tore down the middle partition so that Gentiles could worship. Last week we talked about how he rebuked the chief apostle of the church and Peter because he did not respect, mm. you know, Gentiles because he chose to preserve the fragile feelings of the Jews so he didn't have to uh, deal with their wrath while disenfranchising and dispossessing Gentiles. Like we are very much against this yeah like we don't allow this as christians so if you're going to call yourself a christian school you got to do a lot better and generally speaking i just want people to do better by black women i'm saying this and this shouldn't matter but i'm saying this is somebody who has uh four sisters who are all black women i have the most love and the most the utmost respect for them and one of my greatest fears is that when they go out into this world in spite of their education in spite of how kind and loving these women are that they are still going to be disrespected by the world around them. And, you know, I've had to watch some of my sisters endure this uh, as a result of their race. 
I don't want to see black women get disrespected. And you know, Derek, that most of my close associations out here are also with black women. I fear seeing anything, any kind of disrespect, any kind of dehumanization happen to any of them because I feel a kinship to them, obviously, you know, skin folk, we are kin folk as well. Um, But I, I can't imagine watching any of this happen to them and them not being able to seek redress and further having them not being able to seek redress in the very place they should be able to do it in the midst of a school or in the midst of a Christian organization that this young lady has not been able to seek redress has been easily the most heartbreaking part of this. Like it's one thing to get bullied, like black people come into this world. We are taught and we are, we, we expect to receive resistance. We expect to receive, um, some degree of harassment or bullying because of the color of our skin. And we even expect us to a degree that when we complain about this, that nothing will get done. But these are children, and we have promised in the education system that we were going to protect these children and create an environment where they can learn and be protected, and that this is a private school, that this is a Christian school that has failed on all counts to do all of those things for this young lady just really boils my blood. So... You know, we're going to put this Christian school, Emmanuel Christian in Springfield, Virginia, we're going to put them on the prayer roll in hopes that they speedily repent and that they give uh, this young lady's family and her what they deserve. You know, with these past few incidents with black women, we have showed up for we have showed up for them. Thankfully, every single incident that I mentioned at a school had most of the had for the most part been rectified. Those kids that went to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, uh, they are almost they have almost received justice. The police officer that arrested that six year old black girl, he's been fired. And uh Brecken Willis, the referee that tried to take her victory, her victory did get reinstated and they are investigating uh, that particular referee as to whether or not she will continue being a referee in that school. Yeah. So we are doing things hmm. to uh, try to make these situations right. But, uh, you know, Springfield, Virginia, you really got to follow suit with this particular school. And I just really pray that uh, that this young girl and her family receive justice. There's a lot of awareness around these issues that needs to be part of what every everyone gets taught, everyone hears, everyone encounters. Um, because it's so easy to to just uh, for those of with us with white privilege, we could ignore this and just go on, and our lives are are the same whether we do something about it or not. Yeah, and I think that's where we have to to make a Christ like choice to say, am I going to take a step? Am I gonna, you know, am I gonna do something? Am I gonna be, yeah, and what am I gonna do, right? And it's not like people need a white savior right. to say like, oh, I, I'm going to go in and fix this. It's no, it's about, no, we've got to, we've got to bring black voices of leadership to the table and um, make sure that, that justice, that we don't get in the way of justice. We all got a role to play. And that we, uh, that we can be an ally with, uh, in advocating um, for two other white people who need to hear the message who wouldn't hear it from a black person but they might hear it from me yeah and i think that's that's really important because there are a lot of people in the church who won't listen to me but they'll listen to a straight person that they know Mm -hmm. who has listened to me right and so there's a way that um allies don't take the to the 
take the place of someone, but they can amplify those voices uh, and not speak over them. Yeah. So for my prayer role, I'm bringing Amber Geiger to the list. Woo! Amber Geiger. And so what happened was uh, this. Oh, yeah. It's it's just awful. It's it, a mess. Because part of part of uh, you know, we've got the whole Black Lives Matter movement, and there's this understanding. Then people respond and say, "Well, if you do all the things you're supposed to, the cops won't kill you." And literally, this is a count. There are many counterexamples, but yeah. this is one that you cannot deny. A black man was sitting in his own home, doing nothing wrong, and um, Amber Geiger, who's a, a Dallas police officer, was on the way home to her apartment, and entered um, entered someone else's apartment where you have this black man here. And she decided to kill him. And she says, and I listened to her 911 call. Yeah. And she says 19 times, I thought it was my apartment. And there's just so much entitlement in this, so much sense of um, the system that trained her to say, oh, I can just shoot people when I, whenever I feel afraid or that I can shoot people not knowing all the facts. Um uh, a disregard for life is at the heart of of the way our police are trained. Yeah, uh, I wish police would be trained more in nonviolent um, solutions and in de-escalation strategies and in other um, in other things. Like if I w- walked into my house and there was a stranger in there, I would not shoot that person. First of all, because I don't own a gun. I'm a pacifist. I refuse to own a gun. Mm. Um. Like if someone's about to kill me and all of a sudden there's a gun magically next to my side, I would not kill that person because uh, that's not what Christ would do. He went to the cross. He didn't kill anyone to save his life. He laid down his life. And and I think that's what police officers should do. They should always be – if they choose to go into that career, they should choose to go into that career knowing that they might die. And – and they might, uh, in an ambiguous situation, have to choose not to kill someone else, even though that's at their own risk, right? But that's what you signed up for if you choose to be a cop, and unlike people who are black and don't choose to be black, mm-hmm. right? If you choose to be a cop and you take that risk, then that's the risk you take. Now, then there's a whole bunch of other layers to this. Um, like now it just recently came out that... Uh, she was apparently sexting one of her partners yeah. that night, um, and distracted, in in uh, as she was going home to her apartment, and so apparently she parked on the wrong floor and went to the apartment above hers. But that gets back to this other thing of like, if you're a white person, you need to know your neighbors mm. of color, right? You need to know that someone's lived there. You need to have to know them well enough to recognize their apartment, right? If, you, if you're not doing that, I don't think you're being responsible. Uh, and this goes back to, like, people calling the police on their black neighbors. Like, why not actually get to know your neighbors and, and see what's going on and see what cultural differences there are and see what, what you're afraid of? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you won't be so afraid. Yeah. But then, then there's a... 
and and now she's on trial trial for murder. Yep. And um, we'll see what happens here. I don't know what'll happen. I mean, I have hope. You know, like half the jury's black, uh, black judge, black bailiff. You know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Oh, and here's the other part. I mean, first of all, I'm I'm I have a problem with her accidentally. Well, it's not really an accident. See, that's also gets back to the definition of manslaughter in Texas. Manslaughter is only reserved for when you kill someone accidentally mm-hmm. uh, due to some reckless choice of yours. Like if I drop my gun and it goes off and kills you, but not if I kill you under a mistaken uh, I, uh, a mistake of fact. Right. 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 Um, that that's not manslaughter. That's the, that's murder. And. uh and it's there's a couple of things like one it it d- doesn't seem that she cared about his life even after she realized her mistake i don't know whether he could have been saved or not but she was more worried about losing her job than saving his life yeah and that's clear in the recording uh just centering her whiteness at a time where she should have realized oh i made a mistake let me like i don't even care if i go to jail or not for this i need to save this man rather than covering my end of it, you know? And so there's just a whole bunch of problems here. What What are your thoughts on this? I want to hear more from Dude. you because this is... I mean, you've already hit on probably what my biggest issue with, you know, her is, was just the entitlement, the just utter disregard for black life. Like something that I, that I learned about the case today was that they actually interviewed like hundreds of residents at that particular complex, asking them, if any of them had, you know, got off on the wrong floor before or even entered the wrong apartment on the wrong floor. And um, out of like close to 300, there was about 30 or f- about 30 or 40 of them that did. And uh, none of those ended in somebody dying. You know what I'm saying? Like none of those ended yeah. with somebody losing their life. Right. I and mean, she heard noise in the apartment. The door was open, but she still made the decision to go in. When she could have called for backup, yep. could have waited on somebody. She didn't have to go in, but she did choose to go in, even though she knew something was well, she off. She went in probably because she felt safe because she had a gun, which is a problem. Which is a problem. Right. And then sure if you're enough. Think, if you're using your gun to feel safe, you should not be a cop. Right. Like, that is not that is not the purpose of having a gun. You know what I'm saying? She went in and she walked in anyway. She saw this person in her apartment who was unarmed. You know, mm-hmm. on the couch, he was defenseless and she decided to shoot, you know, like that. I mean, the whole. Th- I don't know, man, just the whole thing breaks my heart because while I may even if even if I give her the benefit of the doubt here that, you know, she just engaged in a panicked reaction, I have to still give credit where credit is due and giving her that panic response. And you already covered this, Derek. But the fact that she's conditioned by a system that makes her believe that a random black guy in this place that she doesn't feel he belongs in, she has to shoot him, is a is a big problem. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I And legally in Texas, he could have shot her. He could have shot her. He could right. have shot her. Right. You can defend your own residence from an intruder with deadly force in Texas. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he literally and now and now here's the, now think about what if he had a gun, he he literally legally could have shot her. Yep. In defense of his home, and then the media would have portrayed it as, oh well, she had to kill him because he had a gun, mm-hmm. right? So white supremacy puts people of color in a lose lose situation. Right. To arm yourself or to not arm yourself, it's just a you know a mess. You're still gonna lose. And I believe the only reason we're getting this far, this close to justice, is because thankfully, Botham Jean did not have a criminal record. You know, he was a, you know, he performed at his church. He like, I think he like led the uh, music ministry there or something like that. Like, can we only imagine how this case might be going if Botham Jean was actually a criminal or had any kind of criminal history? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's yeah. It's it, and there's there's a couple of other problematic things. Um, because now I can't imagine myself making that mistake that she did, but pretend right. pretend I did make a big mistake, like like I had a car accident or something, and I and I killed someone in in, in, a, in a car. I wouldn't cover it up, right? I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, you know drive off. I would say, look, I messed up, and. That's not what she did. She she deleted her texts yeah. to her friend. Um, she apparently lied when she said that she gave him instructions and he mm-hmm. didn't follow them. Yep. Um, apparently, there are witnesses who said, nope, we, we heard didn't everything. Hear anything. And, and all we heard was gunshots and the walls are paper thin. And we would have heard if someone is yelling instructions to someone else. Yeah. So she killed him with no warning, with no questions. And then she lied about it. And then she lied about it. And that's and then and then she's and then uh, she lied about the real reasons she was distracted, um, saying that, oh, she was just tired. But when really she was probably sexting. Now, I'm not actually against the sexting. If you're going to sext, this needs to be between consenting adults that doesn't hurt anyone else. Mm. Right. If you're if you're if this is causing you to. She was sexting a married man, by the way. Uh oh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that part of it. Well, Jesus got something to say about about adultery, right? Yep. Yep. Um. But like aside. But from anyway, that, but that's that's my point is not to ha- to have any type of sexual shaming. Like if you are going to engage in consensual sexual communication with someone, do it in a way that that doesn't hurt anyone else, that doesn't cause you to lose your job, that doesn't that. Well, like, doesn't hurt it. That that doesn't kill anyone else. That doesn't you cause you to be distracted as a driver, right? Right. Yeah. If it if you keep it in your own bedroom, between consenting adults, like, fine. But the problem is, she was more concerned about that and didn't actually be present when another human needed her to mm-hmm. be present, and that yeah. is a crime against God's name. Yeah. Because sh- there's a a child in of God I- in God's image who's no longer here because of her sense of entitlement to the way she was living her life. So we need to to put her on the prayer roll, and um, and there's there's this whole there's a whole there's a whole thing. I um she needs to go to jail. <laughs> Consequences, right. man. Right. Like, Right. Whether she meant to do it or not, the fact that her actions ended somebody's life unnecessarily, mm-hmm. like there's a consequence for that. She has right. to go to jail. 
Yeah, like going back to the thing of it, if I kill someone in a car accident and it's because of something that I did that's my fault that yeah. a reasonable person wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, if it meets the standard of being reckless, then I should go to jail. If it's an accident that um, that's completely not my fault, that you know that any reasonable person would have done what I did, and someone just stepped out in front of me, and there's no way. If it's not, if you know, if then then I then I probably would be acquitted. But but if it's if I make a mistake out of my recklessness that kills someone else, I wouldn't I wouldn't. I wouldn't make excuses and cover it up. I would say, look, I'm going to jail, and I can read the Bible in jail for several decades if I need to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. that is uh, that is the prayer roll. Thank you for sharing, Derek. Uh, do we have a creating Christ-like change for this week? Yes. Um, so I, a few, uh, a while back, noticed a lot of the discourse about LGBT news especially um people reporting on tragedies or problems or anything like that and i thought to myself i really need to do something about this because the way that these things are being reported and the the resources that are uh created even by allies who are on the right side can actually be problematic and so okay. i created this protocol with four things that i think lgbt mormons need and these are the four things. Uh, and I created this also looking at the literature on suicide prevention. Okay. Uh, uh, and I'll, and just listening to a lot of people. And so the first thing is resilience. Because I can't prevent uh, uh, microaggressions from happening in the church, in your ward, in your family. And I also can't uh, prevent injustices or discrimination. But what we can do is foster a resilience the ability to bounce back from those because yes the pain's gonna be there the, the hurt the injustice is there but giving people practical tools to bounce back from that is what what people need if people are more resilient then um then people will uh will be able to continue right to yeah. be able to continue life even now I don't want now obviously this could get into what you might say uh well we don't want to make um injustice we don't want to accommodate ourselves to make injustice uh, uh, survivable we want to get rid of the injustice and I get that too but because I we can't do that instantly in the meantime like how do we actually have enough uh coping strategies to to do the work so the first one is resilience the other is hope Hope for change. Hope that things will get better in your life. Things will get better in your, in the church as an institution. Things that hope that things will get better in the U.S. in the world in the secular world, and things overall are getting better for LGBTs. It is a little two steps forward, one step back, but uh, but the trajectory is towards greater acceptance because once people get to know us, they can't believe all those awful things about us anymore. Once you, w once more people come out, uh, and coming out is the one number one most powerful tool we have for change, right? I think if everyone um, in the church who's LGBT all of a sudden all came out at once, we'd all be okay. There will be general authorities in that number. There will be many local leaders in that number who are LGBT and closeted. If we all magically came out at the same time, 
we'd be okay. Um, so hope for change. And change is coming. And w we can look at the changes that have already happened in the church. We've talked about this before. Many of the major problems uh, or and the, and the foundations of the problem have changed, like the idea that being gay is a chosen wickedness or, or sin like, like uh, gambling or, or, or drinking or something. Um, that that it's some <coughs> that it's just some vice that anyone could fall into if they make the wrong choice. No, no, it's it's different. People realize that, and the idea that gays can change is no longer taught by the church. And the idea that um, gays should marry someone of the gender that they're not attracted to—that's no longer taught. And all of these other things are no longer really taught. And so there's there's hope for change, and we've so, seen some some positive steps, not enough obviously, but some steps that allow us to have hope for change in the future. Another one is power, because coming from the outside of of outside the uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints into it, I was looking at, around at all the other gay Mormons, and I'm like, you don't know the power you have, because they're so battered uh, and so. Um, socialized to feel like they nothing they do matters, and that they they have this sense of learned helplessness, um, that everything they that nothing they do changes things or, or or matters. And I'm here to say that we actually have a lot more power than we think we do. We have power locally. We have power um, worldwide. We have power on the internet. We have power. We we don't have all the power, but we have more power than we think we do. And even just the sensation of power can help with um, uh, suicide prevention because you have this idea of, oh, look, I, I could maybe do something or I could, I don't have to give up. There's, there's still, still things I could do. Now those things they could do maybe won't work right away, but, or, but it gives people this sense of hope, again, is one of them, but, but this powerlessness that comes with nothing I do will get me out of this leads to people um, choosing to die by suicide. And I think the more empowered we are as LGBT members, the more uh, we will ha we'll have a chance at functioning and thriving in the church. And then the last one is community. Community with other LGBT Mormons. Because I hear so many Mormons who are LGBT say, oh, I thought I was the only one. I'm like, what are you thinking? Um, of course they're not the only one, but I think it's not their fault. They probably don't know anyone. And just knowing that someone else has gone through this w before, someone who's going through it with you, someone who understands you, someone that you have a connection with that you're not alone, you're not going through this alone, is really helpful. And so the four, again, are resilience, hope, power, and community. And the practical result of this is kind of like, oh, if you're going to share an article. I've seen some articles around suicide that just – are really pessimistic. They just talk about the problem, but they don't give any hope. They don't give. They they make out LGBTs just to be like uh, victims, which we are. But you can't just say that we're people to be acted upon, and without realizing that we also have the power to act ourselves. Um, without any hope, without any tools for resilience, people could read an article like that, especially young impressionable teens, and just give up hope and and. And I don't want that to happen. I think, yes, the, the people in power, um, the decision makers in the churchl churches need to know what the problem is. 
but we shouldn't just put it out on the internet and uh, without any type of context, with any type of relationship or support or anything like that. It's kind of like in the in the military, they don't tell the soldiers on the ground how many people are dying. Yeah, the generals the generals need to know who's dying and where. But in terms of boosting morale, if you told, um, like in World War II, like you had thousands of people die in battles. And so much of a battle, now I'm a pacifist, so I don't actually support the war uh, as, a, as a concept, uh, wars in general. But, but the fact is that, that if, if your numbers are lopsided or against you and you're the underdog and your equipment is undersided, but if you have morale... And you have this team understanding of, look, we're going to, um, you could probably win the battle if your other team doesn't, if, I mean, if the, if your enemy doesn't have the morale, that is a significant factor, um, both in sports and in warfare that can make you, that can give you superpowers, right? And I think what we really need to do is boost the morale of LGBT Mormons. And which is why I don't like this, co this, this, uh, uh, complaint and criticism against me that people say, well, if you're gay, you should just leave the church. I mean, like, no, what we should do is have homophobia leave the church. Mm. And in order to do that, we need to do the work, and we need to boost the morale of the people who are here doing the work in order to get that done. Because, yes, you could have the gays leave the church now, but... What about the next generation of gays and the next generation afterward? Because all these straight Mormons are going to be having LGBT children. Mm -hmm. And you're just like delaying the problem. And, you know, rather than solving it, you're just passing it down another generation, which gets back into the whole climate change problem of passing that problem down another generation. But I don't want to talk about that. But anyway, so that's my sort of my practical idea of, of like, oh, if you're going to create a support group or if you're going to create this resource for, for LGBTs, if you're going to create a group or a document or a post or whatever, or you're going to share any of these things, think about those four things. Does it help create a sense of optimism or not? So what do you think about all these things? <laughs> Gosh. Um, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly, first off. Yeah. And I'm glad you uh, brought up this whole... Um, Gosh, come back, come back, come back, come back. The part about accommodating the injustice rather than getting rid of it? Well, I like, yeah, because you said rather than, you know, gay folks leaving the church, homophobia needed to leave, leave, the, leave the church. I, I thought that was a whole bar. And as you said, like that, even if such a thing were feasible, it's not going to fix the problem. Like, it's far more practical, far more Christ-like, and far more efficient to simply eradicate the homophobia, which, by uh, the church's own admission, the church's own doctrine, does not even have a place here in the first place. So, um, Yeah, I, they didn't show their work. They did not show their work. They You're didn't totally explain right. their reasoning. They wouldn't have done well in my math class. <laughs> no, they would not have. So, um, there's a lot to be said for... You know the ways we can do that. Uh, make sure that what we're doing in this in this quest to eradicate homophobia is positive, is uplifting, and uh, elevates the voices of folks in a way that shows us um, the the way that members of the community can thrive, and not just the ways that they are being hurt. So, um, yeah, I, I I admit that I don't often think about that. I often think 
myself about all the hurt that's being caused to the to the LGBTQ community and not enough about people like, you know, you, Derek, who are thriving. You know, I far am more privy to the hurt than I am to the success stories. But uh, this is definitely something to consider. And for somebody who is, you know, doing their darndest to be an ally, I'm going to make more of an effort to, to lift that up. So thank you for sharing that, Derek. Yeah. All right. So that is Creating Christlike Change. We've already gone over announcements. Again, tune in to uh, our Twitter account, at BTBLDS. We will be live tweeting General Conference. We'll look forward to reading your tweet- tweets as well and uh, look forward to talking to you guys online. Anything from you, Derek? Nope, that's it. We'll see you uh, at conference. See you at conference. Take care, guys. Bye.